Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Programming notes, top of the program today. Uh, later this week, probably on Thursday, we are going to open the phone lines, uh, email, uh, and allow you, uh, reach out to you to respond and uh, join as a community to respond to what's been described as the worst mass shooting in U.S. history now, the uh, the mass shooting in Orlando. Um, I want to give you a chance to, uh, to share your thoughts and feelings. That'll be coming up later in the week. This program is made possible by a grant to Utah Humanities as part of the Pulitzer Prize Centennial Campfires Initiative, a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize Board and the Federation of State Humanities Council in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. The initiative seeks to illuminate the impact of journalism and humanities on American life today, to imagine their future and to inspire new generations to consider the values represented by the body of Pulitzer Prize winning work. This year-long project in Utah is a collaboration between Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, Utah Public Radio, and KCPW. The Campfires Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, and the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Pulitzer Prizes Board, and Columbia University. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It was a meme before meme was a thing. Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Idaho native, and Harvard professor Laurel Thatcher Ulrich observed in 1976 in her first scholarly paper that well-behaved women seldom make history. That comment became a popular slogan, appearing on T-shirts, mugs, bumper stickers, greeting cards, websites, and blogs. In her book by the same name, Ulrich explains how the phenomenon happened and what it means by looking back at women of the past who challenged the way history was written. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich won the 1991 Pulitzer Prize for History for A Midwife's Tale. Her approach to history has been described as a tribute to the silent work of ordinary people. And Ulrich says that she aims to show the interconnection between public events and private experience. And uh, we uh, thank KUER for the use of their studios. And we uh, now reach out to Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, who joins us from KUR Studios. Professor Ulrich, uh, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So I want to talk about a lot during the hour. We'll get as much as we can. I want to start with uh, well-behaved women seldom make history. I, I imagine you you didn't think this was going to become what it did become when you wrote that in 1976. Oh, no. I, I was trying to uh, write a catchy introduction to an article on Puritan funeral sermons. Can you believe? Wow. Uh, so it was a big surprise. I was simply explaining that these godly women who were celebrated in this body of ministerial sermons um, didn't usually get noticed mm -hmm. in public because well-behaved women seldom make history. And a number of years later, actually after my work was better known uh, because of the Pulitzer, um, a journalist, Kay Mills, picked up that sentence and used it as an epigraph for uh, one of her projects. And then it went from there to a book of quotations, and all of this unbeknownst to me. And then um, somebody picked it up and, and from that book of quotations and wrote me and said, can I put this on T-shirts? Um, <laughs> and I thought it was very funny. Uh, did I say that? You know, I, I had to go back and confirm. 
Um, and I said, sure, send me a T-shirt. Mm-hmm. I had no idea this was going to take off. <laughs> now, have, I don't know. If it occurred to me, uh, maybe I'm uh, money-oriented. Has it occurred to you that if you'd have copyrighted that, you could have made some money? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are lots of places where um, I'm I'm really famous for that one line, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, all the many, many hours of scholarship mm-hmm. and um uh, one sentence took off, but of course, um, I didn't have foresight, and nobody would have copyrighted it anyway. Yeah, it probably would have escaped that. Uh, yeah. So, um, you had a specific meaning in mind in that 1976 paper, but of course, it's taken on many different meanings. So, maybe we could start there. What 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 did you mean in the 1976 paper? Okay, and um, it's taken on. A tremendous number of meanings, some of which were very much present in that early paper. Um, and I, you know, wrote the book a um, number of years later, in part to respond to those varied meanings. So one meaning, of course, is that um, women who are do what society expects of them pretty much get ignored. I mean, it's the old proverb, you know, a, a good woman's name is not supposed to appear in the newspaper except maybe when she's married and when she dies. Mm. So there's something wrong if uh, you make history, the implication meaning uh, you've done something outrageous. Um, and in truth, my first book, which was based largely on court records, really confirms that. I mean, it was people who got into trouble, and therefore their voices were recorded in court records that um, appear in that book, along with women who showed up in funeral sermons. But those funeral sermons were very much part of an effort on the part of the clergy to ratify a certain view of what a good woman should do. So there was that tension in my book, Good Wives, between the the pious um, woman who was godly, who asked nothing for herself, who was self-sacrificing, and uh, the women who got into trouble, like Quaker women, for example, who presumed to speak in public, or women who, you know, created a ruckus in the, in the meeting house, or women who got into trouble for their sexual behavior. Um, so from the very beginning in my work, I've, I've played this dual view of the well-behaved, bad-wave woman around the theme of who gets remembered and why. Mm-hmm. And I've sought very, very hard to write um, more complex history that incorporates wherever possible the voices of women themselves who were neither perfect nor outrageous, mm. but who nevertheless had an impact on history. 
One of the women you uh, treat in the book is Virginia Woolf. Uh, you have a quote of hers at the beginning of, of the book, Well-Behaved Women Seldom Make History. I'll just read this briefly. For all the dinners are cooked, the plates and cups washed, the children are set to school and gone out into the world, nothing remains of it all. All has vanished. No biography or history has a word to say about it. And the novels, without meaning to inevitably lie. That's Virginia Woolf. Yes. And, of course, Virginia Woolf is amazing in having um, created <clears throat> high literary art out of, you know, Mrs. Dalloway's search for flowers for her dinner party. I mean, just to really get into the inside and consciousness of an anonymous woman's life. Before we get into how this intersects with what history is, and you have some very interesting ideas on what what history what history has been, then you push back on that a bit. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a few of the a few of the story. I was enjoying reading in in uh, well-behaved women uh, seldom make history. The book you you made on this uh, reactions that women have, <laughs> uh, have had. One, what? Let me just start with one young lady wanted to cite this in a paper she was doing, but she didn't want to have to cite a T-shirt, so she, I guess she contacted you. <laughs> yes. Um, I wrote the book in part because I was getting all this fan mail. Um, it was very, very strange. Or I'd go into some place. I, I remember going to a conference once that was held in a, in a women's camp, and the, the young women who were working in the kitchen all said, are you the woman who <laughs> you know, created the slogan? And it, it was a very odd experience. I, I mean, it showed up on um, various kinds of um, activist uh, websites, or I had people write and say, could I use this uh, for, say, um, a conference of women judges? Or can I use this in a, a meeting of midwives? Or, you know, can we use a, this in a campaign um, for, you know, almost any cause you could think of? But then I got this, um, I got some um, somewhat risque uh, comments and the various versions and the illustrations of this very much written about the, exactly the point I was making is that women who get into trouble end up um, in history. And so some people ran with that theme. Other people ran with the theme of anonymity. So quilters like this slogan. Um, we're, we're doing this methodical craft and artwork, and we, uh, we're making history. Um, we're asserting ourselves through something that's not been noted uh, before. One of the funnier examples was um, a woman who wrote and said she and her husband were having an argument about this bumper sticker, whether <laughs> it should be on their car. And she wanted my reassur uh, reassurance, you know, that I was not promoting bad behavior. <laughs> the, I can just see that argument. Uh, by the way, are there differences that you've heard of, and I guess there would be, in, in the way men respond to that slogan versus women? Oh, sometimes, I, I actually, um, there have been some um, websites attempting to refute it uh, on the presumed meaning. Um, but I think men um, get the point. Uh, mm -hmm. we're, we're becoming, um, 
much more conscious of the fact that history as taught, certainly in my generation, um, pretty much ignored some of the most important things that went on, that women have had a great impact on history and historical change, often in complex ways. So in the introduction to the book, I, I, I talk um, about um, a number of figures who, uh, like Rosa Parks, um, who was idealized, very much idealized as just an ordinary, well-behaved woman whose feet got tired and didn't want to move to the back of the bus. And that's an example, you know, sort of the, the amazement that this well-behaved, anonymous woman made history. But, of course, when you look at her actual life, you realize she had been an activist. She had trained um, in civil rights work. She was the secretary of the local NAACP. Her whole moment of civil disobedience had been carefully planned precisely because she appeared respectable um, and would therefore um, get attention and and help people to rally around the cause. Mm. So these things are so much still alive with us, even not going to comment on contemporary politics, but if you look around, <laughs> you will you will see it's really hard sometimes to um, know how to look at a woman in public life because we have so many centuries, really, of supposing that they don't belong there, even though they have been mm. involved. Well, to maybe I could get you to comment uh, tangentially on current politics, just in very in general. Let me read a quote. Uh, this struck me from uh, Catherine Harris in the New York Times review of her review of your book, "Well-Behaved Women: A Cell to Make History." She says that women don't have voices, but female voices is obvious from the way our vote is courted. Our leaning studies at us as if influenced by whim or superstition, or heaven forbid, hormones. Never been a problem for men, of course. She says parenthetically. Yes. Uh, the woman's vote, as though all women are alike, and, and we do see a gender gap, but um, there, there are, of course, gender differences broadly construed, but one of the things that I often try to help my students understand in this uh, uh, way that we um, create males and females as separate species is that almost all the data used to show differences between men and women, um, the statistical variation is usually very small. And there's a very large middle area where um, men and women overlap mm. on personality qualities, on talents. I, you know, in the, in the book, I talk a lot about uh, women in war in one of the chapters and the really powerful socialization of men toward war and women assumed to be peacemakers or people who pick up the pieces after destructive wars. But when people look very, very closely at these relationships, they see how much they are constructed dichotomies that begin to break down, mm -hmm. that all men are not warlike, and some women are. 
How do those constructed dichotomies, how do, how do those get break, broken down? Um, well, I think they get broken down as people begin to uh, recognize them as stereotypical and begin to acknowledge and act out their abilities, their interests, and their challenges. And and standing up against legal restrictions, for example, that reinforce um, those those little packages that we put people in. I mean, societies do categorize people. I mean, it's part of the human process, but um, it's really helpful to look at history to see the immense variation there has been over time in many of roles that in our own society are presumed to be only belonging to one gender or another. For example, health care has been a primary responsibility of women from time immemorial. And in my Pulitzer book, uh, Midwife's Tale, one of the most important insights that I tried to develop there is the centrality of the midwife uh, in general health care, not just in delivering babies, and the nature of that health care. And, and, you know, we have this assumption the midwife is a kind of unlearned a person, the doctor is the one who kind of rescued women from the horrors of childbirth. And nothing could be further from the truth historically that um, the death rates and the infection rates actually went up as doctors moved into um, childbirth in the very early 19th century in the United States. These are complex issues. I don't want to make any kind of argument about the universal validity of one form of, of childbearing over another. But um, midwives were highly respected in their communities in early America and, and actually had uh, great responsibility for the general health care in rural societies in many parts of the world. Let's take a break. When we come back more with uh, Professor uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, um, she is a Harvard professor. In fact, she's uh, Harvard's 300th anniversary university professor, um, and she's joining us from uh, KUER Studios in Salt Lake City. You're welcome to join this conversation, by the way. Uh, we hope that you will if you have a question or comment. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Or upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. This program is made possible by a grant to Utah Humanities as part of the Pulitzer Prize Centennial Campfires Initiative, a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize Board and the Federation of State Humanities Council in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. This year-long project in Utah is a collaboration between Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, Utah Public Radio, and KCPW. Corporate America has always been tough, but never like this. And basically it was, uh, you know, look to the left, look to the right. Some of you won't be here. 
I think that's when my heart went through the floor, and I'm sure a lot of others, too. I'm Kai Rizdal. Our series, The Price of Profits, starts off with a corporate legend, IBM, next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're pleased to have with us a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Idaho native, and Harvard professor Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. And her books include her 1991 Pulitzer Prize-winning book, A Midwife's Tale. She also wrote a book based on a phrase that became famous from one of her papers, Well-Behaved Women Seldom Make History, and several other books. Um, she uh, has been described, uh, her approach to history has been described as a tribute to the silent work of ordinary people. She says she aims to show the interconnection between public events and private experience. You can join the conversation here at 1-800-826-1495, toll-free, 1-800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, uh, I want to uh, one more foray kind of tangentially into the into current politics, then we'll drop that. Uh, okay. That's a, kind, of a, kind of a loaded topic. Um, but uh, I'm sure you have some thoughts on the candidacy of Hillary Clinton um, in this, and uh, just your general thoughts. Uh, she's now the uh, the first um, female uh, candidate from a major party. Yes, there's so many ways to think about um, this historic first, and one of them is the way in which it is very familiar. That is um, going back um, quite a ways in American history. If we think about early women who were governors or uh, congressmen, the, they often succeed their husbands very frequently at the death of a husband. In fact, uh, that continues um, today in Massachusetts, one of our um, Congresswoman, um, a congresswoman from Massachusetts, uh, Representative Songus, um, ran for that office after her husband died. This is a well-documented phenomenon. And the interesting thing about Hillary Clinton is if she is elected, um, she's stepping into a position that her husband had, but he's very much alive. And so in some ways, this is traditional, and in other ways, it's revolutionary. She, of course, was an unusual first lady, um, was um, attacked and praised for taking a more active role. She came into that position at a time when women were redefining what it meant to be a good wife, um, and it included having opinions and having capacity for leadership. So as she moved into the realm of governing, although unelected, coming as a first lady, uh, she faced uh, some controversy. And um, it's really fascinating then to see how on leaving the White House, how she developed an independent career by running for the Senate and then later running for the presidency and then assuming the position of Secretary of State. So Clinton is fascinating because she has both this traditional trajectory into politics and then a very independent 
uh, building of a public career. And, and I think that may be one reason she's confusing to people. Mm-hmm. It was very interesting to me, and I, uh, interesting to see how this plays out. Uh, Mr. Trump famously uh, said that Hillary Clinton's playing the woman card, right? And so that gets into a lot of uh, issues. Um, you know, how do we see her? But it's inevitable that we're we're seeing her as the potential first woman president. That's true. And um, eight years ago, it was an even more fascinating um, the the contest between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, because then you had the supposed woman card or gender card and race card sort of coming together in ways that were difficult for many people. And that, too, has fascinating historical precedents, because the women's rights movement and the anti-slavery movement grew up together in the 19th century. And in the 20th century, the civil rights movement and the uh, new feminism, the second wave, so-called second wave feminism, also grew up together, often in tandem and sometimes in conflict. So what this says, I think, both about race in politics and gender in politics is the difficulty people have to accommodate um, new players in an old game and uh, something that has been pretty much monopolized by white men we assume there is no gender card or no race card but of course there is (laughs) because whiteness and maleness are part of the whole conversation of gender and race. But it's the newcomers who make that visible and then begin to disturb people's thinking about what is correct and what is not correct. In uh, in your book, uh, um, Well-Behaved Women Seldom Make History, you, you write, is in the, you're, you're studying this phenomenon. It's very interesting. You coined the phrase, then it went out of the world and became a thing, then it, then it came back to you, and then you're studying this. Uh, but, but your question is, is this feminism, post-feminism, or something much older? And I, I think you're pointing in your book to the, this is something much older. Yes. Um, there have always been these dilemmas. Um, the fundamental division among human beings uh, begins at birth. Um, we have boy babies and girl babies, usually. Yeah. Occasionally. Usually, yeah. <laughs> uh, usually, there are. Um, and um, male-female dynamics uh, shape all human societies and sometimes become patterns for other kinds of dichotomies and oppositions and identity um, conflicts. So I don't think there's ever been a period when there haven't been, they're not the same issues, but there haven't been issues related to the assignment of of gender and gender relationships, uh, including same-sex relationships. So we go back into history, and it's not identical to what's happening in the present, but one of the persons that I sort of invoke in the first chapter of Well-Behaved Women Seldom Make History is a woman named Christine de Pizan, who was a medieval, late medieval uh, writer who wrote a a very um, amazing book um, 
called The Book of the City of Ladies. And it's just astonishing how many of the issues she brings up in that book that then replay themselves over time in other works, in works that, you know, the authors never read, Christine, but the issues are there, um, issues about um, um, the capacity of women uh, in religion, the capacity of women in politics or of leadership. And these were big issues in Christine's time. Um, she was a contemporary of Joan of Arc. Um, she actually wrote about Joan um, in uh, one of her very long and important poems. So women, activist women, women warriors, uh, women mystics, uh, women healers, these, these roles are there historically and have been for a long time and in many circumstances have, have been problematic and have inspired women to assert themselves and make a claim for a wider place in their society. You write in the, the book, um, women are, what well, it's not you, this quote, uh, this is a New Hampshire pastor, 1650s, women are the center and men are the lines. And you go on to say the problem with this argument is that it not only limits women, also limits history. Yes. Um, <laughs> lovely quote. Thanks for reminding me of that. Um, the idea that women's lives are, are circular, that is, they're just controlled by their bodies and by the ongoing patterns of birth, illness, death, caregiving, that they've never changed, that there's a kind of essential womanhood that goes back into antiquity and continues to the present. Well, there are continuities in the life in, in human bodies and in the lives of human beings male and female but the there are also dramatic transformations and change so if you think of a line as a kind of progressive development and succession of changes over time to attach that only to male activities is to really limit history because Childbirth has changed. Our perception of bodies has changed. Certainly the domestic economies over time very widely and dramatically. And, of course, women have never been confined to simply the circle of childbearing and rearing. Um, they have always been engaged in politics and community issues. We're talking with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. Uh, she is a Harvard professor. She's Harvard's 300th anniversary university professor. Um, and uh, she's joining us from KUER Studios in Salt Lake City. Uh, we're glad to have her with us. And uh, this episode is a part of the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative. It's a collaboration between Utah Public Radio, Utah Humanities, Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. And uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich is uh, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, 1991 Pulitzer Prize for History for a Midwife's Tale. Several other books. Um, we'll, uh, if we have time, get into what she has coming up uh, lately. And uh, we've been talking, of course, uh, about the famous phrase that turned into a book uh, by her, well-behaved women seldom uh, make, make history. I want to get into, um, Professor Ulrich, what history is. You've thought a lot about this. There are debates about this. Um, so t maybe we can get into this by having you tell me about 
how the 1991 book uh, came about. How did you come onto this this history of uh, Martha Ballard? Um, well, uh, yes, that's a good entry point. History is not what happened in the past. It's an account of the past based on surviving sources, surviving documents and other forms of evidence that let us understand the past. So it's also par a partial account of the past. And if we have no sources, we have no history. So what was important about my work uh, in the book A Midwife's Tale was the discovery of a magnificent source that no one had really used before, been used in a marginal way by genealogists and local historians. But it was a magnificent 27-year handwritten daily diary left by a woman named Martha Moore Ballard. She was born in 1735, but she began her diary when she was 50 years old and had migrated to what was then the kind of frontier of Maine on the Kennebec River. And this little diary had this little diary, this big diary, uh, 27 years, um, had uh, survived in her family, passed down to her daughters and granddaughters, and then to a great-granddaughter um, who was an early physician in uh, late 19th century Massachusetts, and she gave it to the state library where it just sat. And I stumbled on this when I was at the Maine State Library looking for something else, and I was simply stunned because I had written my first book about women in northern New England in the 16th and uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries, 1600 to 1750. And I had found only a few scraps in a woman's handwriting. I, I worked with sermons. I worked with court records to try to get at the lives of women. And yet here sitting in front of me was this amazing diary. Took me a while to learn that it was magnificent. I mean, it looked a little humdrum. In fact, that's probably the reason very few people had looked at it before. And, and in truth, historians don't hang out in state libraries in Maine or Idaho or anywhere else. I mean, you know, they tend to work in um, major university libraries like Harvard or Yale. And there it was. Um, and I, as I worked with it over one summer, I... I realized it, it was a book, and it was transformative for me, and um, I will try not to brag <laughs> by saying oh, brag away. that it's, it's been transformative in the lives of many people. Mm -hmm. I, I can't tell you the number of people who have told me that, for good or ill, they've gone to, back to graduate school or they've taken up some kind of, of work. Um, because they were inspired by the story of this uh, woman and this uh, well-behaved, forgotten woman and the ways in which uh, she made history. Hmm. Why do you think it's been inspirational in that way? Um, I think it's been inspirational at, at 
many levels. Martha Ballard turns out um, to have the kind of complexity that I said earlier in our interview that I'm, I'm trying to capture. That is to break down this dichotomy between the good woman, the, the activist woman, the assertive woman, um, because she was both. She was a mother. Uh, she was a grandmother. She was a housewife. She spun and uh, managed weaving in her household. She made soap and candles. I mean, she was the stereotypical good wife. You could almost find her, uh, you know, described in the book of Proverbs, you know, her hand turned to the spindle, the distaff and the spindle. Um, but she was a primary caregiver for women and children and sometimes and fact, quite often for men, when um, men in the militia muster were burned, they called on Mrs. Ballard to come and and treat them. So she was embedded in health care, but also in this period, midwives had a quasi-judicial role in that um, in cases of -of out-of-wedlock birth, they often were called to testify. It was a tradition, a very interesting one, going way back into the 1600s in English law. If a, a woman gave birth out of wedlock, the midwife at the height of labor would interrogate her, who is the father of your child? And the woman would respond, And then if that testimony was affirmed before the justice of the peace, that man had to pay child support. Now, it seems kind of a terrifying thing to do to interrogate a woman at the height of labor. I mean, today we would think that's outrageous. What it really did, however, was give both the woman through her midwife and the group of women who are there as witnesses, the power to hold that man accountable and to provide support. And the most dramatic case um, that I write about in the midwife's tale is when um, she had the opportunity to deliver a baby and the woman said, your son, Jonathan, is the father of this child. Well, Martha knew that. Uh, She was going through a formality. So, I mean, she too wanted Jonathan to be responsible and he did marry the mother. Um, So, um, there... um, there, the other, the other theme, uh, an economic theme that was transformative for me. I had guessed at it in my earlier work, but it was very exciting to see it documented. And, and I had then gone on and done additional work on this. Is that there really was a female economy at the base of these rural economies, a female economy that was not acknowledged in the kind of tax records or account book records that had usually been used to study the nature of economies in these periods. It's a somewhat invisible, but it's an exchange economy in which of both labor and goods. 
in which women were involved. And the, the products produced in that economy did get in to the larger mainstream of trade, but they usually came in under the names of male heads of household. So it allowed me to see underneath and inside the visible sources, the invisible work that had taken place. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to get into, uh, Professor Earl, some of your personal history. Very interesting. Um, and uh, I want to bring up these these two quotes of yours, kind of in juxtaposition. They're, they're not in opposition, but I'd like to have you uh, talk about this. One of your quotes is, the real drama is in the humdrum. We've been talking about that a little bit. Another quote, good history is almost always dangerous. So we'll talk a bit about that following the break. This program is made possible by a grant to Utah Humanities as part of the Pulitzer Prize Centennial Campfires Initiative, a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize Board and the Federation of State Humanities Council in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. This year-long project in Utah is a collaboration between Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, Utah Public Radio, and KCPW. This is State of the Arts. The arts were so popular in early Cache Valley that it earned the nickname the Athens of the West. According to local lore, all of Shakespeare's plays were performed in Cache Valley by 1870. Hiram, Richmond, Smithfield, Franklin, Wellsville, and Providence all built opera houses around the turn of the century. In 1910, a reporter from Harper's Weekly observed, The people of Cache Valley have evidenced a great interest in dramatics, music, art, and literature since the very beginning of their settlement, and have made this valley a center of art and culture. A century later, Cache Valley is still recognized for its artistic richness with an abundance of visual and performing arts organizations. This is Wendy Hassan for State of the Arts. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, with a cooperative gallery featuring the work of more than 30 participating artists. Details at cachearts.org. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today's episode is part of the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for collaboration between Utah Public Radio, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Our guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Idaho native, Harvard professor, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, who uh, has joined us from KUR Studios in Salt Lake City, our thanks to uh, KUER. Uh, so the, uh, a couple of uh, quotes of yours, I want to have you comment on these. Uh, you could see these in opposition. Not, they're not really in opposition, but, it, but it's kind of a little bit of a tension between these, I think. Uh, the first quote, the real drama is in the humdrum. Hmm. The second quote, good history is almost always dangerous. And you go on to uh, say that uh, totalitarians usually close down the archives, for example. So humdrum c- can be dangerous? Yeah, certainly can. Um And again, I'm talking about this, the hidden and the visible. Um, So to discover what's going on among the ordinary people, um, you have to dive down and look at, you know, nitpicky, tiny details and work your way through them to reconstruct networks. I mean, this is classic detective work, right? Any of the mystery dramas on PBS you know, it's the person who observes the unnoticed detail, who solves the mystery. Well, the same thing can be true for history, for the social sciences more broadly, the discernment of the less obvious. The danger um, comes as you expose these hidden 
aspects of the past. They tend to disrupt the public and acknowledge narratives that keep some people in power and other people's out of power. So you celebrate, you know, the victory of the general and ignore the soldiers. You talk about the um, fabulous work of the, of uh, you know, the famous person, um, but um, don't understand. Well, maybe I could, I could say this way. I mean, it's the visible and the invisible. And any of us who've ever worked on, done any kind of serious work, know the amount of transformation that happens behind the scenes. So the graduate assistant who comes up with the path-breaking insight through slogging hard work that allows maybe the Nobel Prize work to move forward, and yet it's seldom celebrated as a collective enterprise, but usually as the work of a single genius. Um, Those are kind of quick off the top of my head analogies, but I Mm. think people can recognize that in our own lives. Yeah, certainly. I want to, uh, let me just uh, do a couple of paragraphs from um, a a biographical sketch in the Harvard Gazette. This is Corden Ireland, uh, who I thought uh, summed it up uh, very well. Um, She says, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich uh, grew up in Sugar City, Idaho, the dutiful and precocious daughter in a fifth-generation Mormon family. She studied English at the University of Utah, was already married and pregnant by the time she graduated as a valedictorian. She followed her husband east for his graduate studies, fell in with a writerly collective of Mormon feminists, and earned a master's degree part-time. Then Ulrich uh, enrolled in a Ph.D. program in history in the University of New Hampshire. Uh, parenthetically, she had never taken a history course and set to work. Of course, the, re- the rest is is uh, is history. Uh, in my mind, I was connecting this up. Do you do you see yourself as fitting in any way with that with your famous phrase, "Well-behaved women seldom make history"? Oh, sure. <laughs> um, I I mean, there's so many. As I say in in my book again. There's so many meanings to the notion of making history. For me, of course, it's writing history, research and writing history. And I, I tend to not like to focus on my story. So, for some reason, people find it unusual. And I think it's because of a kind of stereotypical notion of Mormonism, that Mormon women are, you know, these demure um, housewives who never raise their voices. Um, those are not the Mormon women I grew up with or know. Um, but uh, people love this tension between, you know, my Idaho rural Mormon background and the fact that I've been um, a successful um, writer and academic. Uh, it's, it's another playing out of these tensions between the visible and the invisible uh, female person. Incidentally, Corridan Ireland, who did that interview, is, is male. Um, oh, okay. It that, oh, so, it, yeah, sorry that about that. Inter- it has that interesting <laughs> name. You, can, yeah. you really can't tell. No. And, and I said, oh, Corey, you know, I'm not very articulate in interviews. You know, I want to re- revise this. It seems so rough to me. Um, he, you know, he spent a very long time with me and telling the story. And it's, um, people have appreciated it. And, and I guess maybe it's the same thing. We, we don't realize often 
the struggles that go into some forms of success in our society, they're real people behind that, and we all struggle and make compromises. I had never taken a history course at the University of Utah. I was an English major. But, you know, somebody said to me the other day, I really like your writing. Where did you learn to write? And, you know, I hadn't thought about this. I said, oh, I wanted to be a writer from the time I was seven years old. I, that's why I majored in journalism and history. One of the things that happened to me and many others of my generation is the more I learned, the more I passed through four years of college, the less confidence I had that I could be a writer. I never read women writers. There were a few of them, but very few of them. I had two female professors in my entire college career. I didn't, wasn't conscious that that had any effect on me, but I became less and less confident as I got more and more education. And it was really the feminist movement and my good friends, um, my good Mormon sister friends, as well as other women who helped to build my confidence and give me the impetus to do something which seemed kind of crazy when I began it, which was to enter a graduate program in history. And uh, I think you have five five children. I have five children. So, so you got that. You know, you got you got that as I well. I did as that. Your, as your, yeah. yeah. So that's yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Pretty I put admirable. Them to, I put them to work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want to um, just have about uh, four minutes left. Uh, I think you you describe yourself as a Mormon feminist, and yes. some people would say, uh, you know, can such a thing exist, Mormon and feminism? Well, that's actually the topic of my new book, which will be out uh, from Alfred Knopf in January. Um, it's called A House Full of Females. And it really takes on the question, not in my own generation, not in the modern period, but in the 19th century, from about 1835 to 1870, of Mormonism, plural marriage, and women's activism, and how those things came together in the astonishing granting of Utah women the vote in 1870, which was pathbreaking, and, you know, decades before, uh, 50 years before it happened in Massachusetts, for example. And so where did this come from, and what was the relationship between what was considered to be an oppressive regime for women and their kind of blossoming and bursting out into the public in 1870 and beyond? And I've really tried to explore that in the way I explore most historical topics by not focusing on their work in the women's suffrage movement after 1870, but by looking at their early lives as Latter-day Saints in the 1830s and then tracing the conflicts they had with church leaders, the challenges they had through opposition, 
from the government and from neighbors, uh, mobs, uh, the familiar story, the challenges of migration, and try to understand where the ability to assert themselves in the ways that they eventually did, that the foundation for that was laid through those experiences from the 1830s to the end of the Civil War. And it's a very exciting project mm-hmm. I've been engaged in for almost 10 years now. Oh, yeah, well, we'll uh, so it's coming out uh, Coming out in next January. Year. Okay. Yeah. Tell mm-hmm. us the title again. A House Full of Females. Okay. We'll look, which we'll look is a quote from an early Mormon diary. All right. Um, should say that Laurel Thatcher Aldrich's books uh, also include The Age of Homespun. She's co-author of Tangible Things. We didn't have time to... Get into that part. Objects. Uh, the subtitle of Age of Homespun, by the way, is Objects and Stories in the Creation of an American Myth. Um, and Good Wives is another another book of uh-huh. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's. Uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich is a Harvard professor, Idaho native, Pulitzer Prize winner. I didn't even mention your recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, the so-called uh, Genius Prize. So congratulations on that as well. Um, and uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich has joined us from the KUER studios in Salt Lake City. We thank them. Uh, this episode has been part of the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative, a collaboration between the Utah Public Radio, Utah Humanities, Salt Lake Tribune, and KCBW. Uh, Professor Ulrich, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Carrie Bringhurst, host of Utah Public Radio's Morning Edition. Tuesday evening from 5 to 9, a generous Logan restaurant is going to be donating 15% of its sales to Utah Public Radio. You can dine on your own between 5 and 10 p.m., or if you would rather, you can meet and eat with me and my UPR colleagues. That's from 6 to 8 that evening. There's a special menu including grilled shrimp fettuccine alfredo, grilled fresh salmon and garlic shrimp, or veggie fettuccine alfredo. I look forward to meeting you. If you'd like the details, go to upr.org. That's upr.org. And thanks for supporting Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. July 6th through August 6th in Logan, 139 events, including concerts, classes, and performances of Puccini's Trilogy and Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. Details at utahfestival.org. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU.